Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. It's a parable of Jesus. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So he also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, uh, where I lost my place, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered, scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and I would gather where I do scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at investing in at my coming, I should have received what was mine own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who, who has not, even he has will, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Hey, thanks, Josh. Yeah, if we haven't met, good morning. My name is Benjur, one of the pastors here at Flourishing Grace. Happy New Year. How are we doing this morning? Listen, we're just going to dive in this morning. Um, and, and I know when, when somebody like me... Um, stands on a stage like this with a microphone like this in the building like this um, on January 2nd, the first Sunday of the year. Um, you, you might be expecting like uh, New Year's resolutions. And listen, I don't know where you stand on it. I don't know if you're one of those people who not only do you have New Year's resolutions, but man, you started on December 31st. Like you wanted to get a head start. You're so excited. Um, maybe, maybe you didn't make any resolutions. Like, honestly, that's where I'm at. I've got five kids. I'm just trying to survive the new year, just to be perfectly honest with you. But no matter where you're at, um, my hope is this. If you're, if you're the resolution type person, I hope that what we talk about today, honestly, I hope it messes with your resolutions. And, and listen, if you're a resolution person, I'm sure your resolutions are good and wonderful, okay? But if we're honest with ourselves, when we, when we set goals, when we look out over the next year, and we say, okay, this is what I want to have happen, and this is what I resolve to do. If we're honest, a lot of times, we're trying to make things better for me. 
right? And, and again, nothing against resolutions because we need goals. Like if, we, if we don't try to do anything, we're not going to do anything. But, but a lot of times our outlook, when we set these kinds of goals, it's just all about me. And if you're in the non-resolution camp, like if you forgot about the new year or, or uh, you're just not really sure what's going on, I hope that today lights a fire under you. So no matter where we are, I hope that today messes with us. And just kind of a warning, I thought about this in the last gathering. Um, as, as we've been kind of walking into today and, and, and I've thought about what we're going to be talking about in the parable that God has for us today, um, uh, honestly, like the, the mentality that I have is what we talk about today, I really want my kids, I've got five kids. I want what we talked about today to root so deeply in their hearts and in their lives that, that, that it changes their trajectory. And so I hope I, I don't come across like, uh, too much like a dad, but that's kind of like where I'm coming from today, where, where this is so important that, that I, I just desperately want this for all of us and I want this for you. Okay, so let's dive in. Um, the, Josh uh, read the parable for us, um, and really what a parable is, is it's a story that makes a point. Jesus was a masterful teacher, and he was a master storyteller. And, and many times he told parables, he told these stories, uh, and these stories were meant to teach a point, because I believe, like, one of the reasons is there are some truths that we need to wrestle with. Right? Like, there are many things Jesus could have said, man, this is just how it is, and sometimes he does, but, but he doesn't always give us the list. Okay, you got to know this, you got to know this, you got to know this date. You gotta, no, no, no. He wanted us to wrestle with these ideas, and I believe that today is no different. Um, just to give us a little bit of, of context of, of where we are today, Matthew um, records this parable of Jesus at the end of Jesus' life. Like, this is Holy Week. If you've ever heard about Holy Week, the week leading up to Jesus' death on the cross, his crucifixion, and Easter, uh, the, the day that we celebrate Jesus rising again from the dead, that's where this parable is taught. And, and essentially, um, what Jesus is doing is he's answering a couple of specific questions that his uh, followers have asked of him. Because as Jesus has been walking step by step towards the cross, as, he, as he's been walking towards Jerusalem, he knows he's going to die on the cross. Um, he knows that, that this is going to happen. Um, he's been talking about what's going to happen in, in the way that he puts it at the end of the age. You see, Jesus, as the Messiah, his followers believed, and in many ways they were right, that, that he, was, he was the king of kings, which is absolutely true. The problem is, it's just a little bit different than they really thought. Because they believed that this was going to be a political power, primarily a political power. This is going to be primarily a military power. We're going to get rid of these Romans. And as Jesus begins talking about the end of the age or the end of days, like they didn't have like everything blowing up in Armageddon in mind. Like in many cases, they had Jesus sitting on the throne and he's destroyed everybody. He's destroyed everybody. And the Jewish people are free and they are worshiping the one true God. And so Jesus begins to teach on this about what this is going to be like. And so they ask him two very important questions that you and I would ask. Hey, Jesus, when is this going to be and how are we going to know it's happening? When is this going to be and how are we going to know this is happening? And Jesus, just like any good teacher, like maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a parent, you work with kids. Jesus knows that the question, the, the answer that they're seeking isn't really the answer that they need. And so Jesus, instead of just answering it point blank, he, he tells a series of stories. And, and in this specific story, he talks about a master who goes away for a long journey. And he talks about what's expected of his servants in the meantime. And as Jesus is telling, this is, this is kind of allegorical, Jesus is the master. 
As we begin to walk through this, Jesus is kind of unpacking um, this idea that, that he's going to die on the cross, he's, he's rising again from the dead, and in a few weeks after that, Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. He's going to leave his followers here on earth to share the good news about what he has done. And this was really confusing to his followers because they didn't believe he was, that a king who's going to take power should go away. No, they believed that he should just simply take power and be the king of kings the way that they thought he should. And so this parable tells us it's not about money, even though these servants are being given money. It's about what we are to do with our lives in the meantime. For those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, what does it mean to be part of Jesus' kingdom in the meantime? Does that make sense? I'm going to give you the big idea as we, as we kind of dive in. And the big idea is this. The only thing worth giving your life to is Jesus and his kingdom. That's kind of the theme of what we're talking about today and the theme of how we're going to look at this story. The only thing worth giving your life to is Jesus and his kingdom. And Josh read the story for us. Um, and, and, and if you missed that, if you're the kind of person that likes to get your cup of coffee and you kind of missed that reading, we're going to be in Matthew 25, starting in, chapter, uh, Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. Um, you're going to want a Bible, so if you didn't grab one, there's a blue one underneath your seat, page 921. And listen, if you don't have a Bible, I want you to grab that one, put your name in it, and take it home. That's our gift to you. But as we kind of dive in uh, and we, we read this story, we hear this story about these three servants, it's very clear as Jesus is telling the story that, that we should look at the first two servants and say, okay, that's what I want to do, and look at the third servant and be like, man, I don't want to do that. And so today we're going to look at the differences between these two. Now here's the thing. The difference isn't really what we think. I don't know about you. Um, I love YouTube because I... Uh, I, I don't know how to fix anything in my house. Like, I, we moved into a house last year, and always there's things to fix. I, I don't know how to do anything. So the first step I do is I, I go to YouTube. And the, my favorite YouTube videos um, aren't the ones that, like, talk about nothing forever and ever. I like the list. Okay, tell me what to do. A, B, C. This past week, I was replacing a light in our house, and, and I've replaced lights before. And so um, did everything I was supposed to. Took it out, and the wires in there, was, it was just not what I was expecting. Like, it, it was out of my league, and, and I didn't know exactly what to do because it wasn't what I had seen before. It wasn't really straightforward. And so my first step, YouTube. What am I going to do? Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at the difference between the first two servants and the third servant, the answer, the, the question I want answered is, what did they do differently? As we dive in, what's really important that we see, that's not the place that we should start. There's actually three really important differences that go before that. So today, before we even get started, if you're looking at these first two servants and like, man, what do I have to do better? How do I have to try harder? How do I have to kind of figure out the list of things I'm supposed to accomplish and then I'm going to be in God's good graces? That's, that's not what this is about at all. And if that's how we approach this, we're going to end up exhausted. We might end up bitter and we're going to miss Jesus altogether. So we're going to look at the differences. We're going to talk about three quick things. The first thing is this, that knowing Jesus is at the center of everything. The way that the servants, the first two servants, viewed the master was much different than the way the third servant viewed the master. Take a look at verse 24. Talking about the third servant, he, the one who had received the one talent, he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Listen, I know. Remember, this is about Jesus, right? Jesus is the master. I know that there are many of us in this room who walk into this room believing that God is a hard God. 
might be because of circumstances. might be because of abuse that you endured. might be because you lost somebody you, you loved. Or it might be, honestly, how you, how you were treated in a, in a church kind of setting. Maybe how you were raised, an idea of God, that God is like the sheriff in the sky just re- waiting for you to mess up. And as soon as you do, saying, see, I told you. I told you you would mess up. For whatever reason, many of us walk into this room believing God to be a hard God. And listen, if that's where you find yourself this morning, I just want to encourage you, that's an okay place to start. It may be that the way somebody treated you, or what somebody taught you about God, or what somebody taught you was important about following Jesus, it may be that it has left you with the impression that God is a hard God, that he's a hard master. Get that. However, we do have a choice in this matter. And I think this is what's hard for some of us to hear. We do have a choice in this matter. Because we have the choice to pursue Jesus. Because he is pursuing us. We have a choice to pursue him. And to nurture a relationship with him. Or to take what we know and run in the other direction. Jesus in his story has the master unmask this third servant. right? Because maybe the third servant, maybe, maybe you're like me, I'm kind of a skeptic by nature. Maybe the third servant's right. Maybe everybody had it wrong about this master. But when we, when we look at what this says, if you take a look in uh, verse 26, the master answers him, wicked and slothful servant. Man, that's, that's harsh. But why does he say that? You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I gathered where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have invested my money with bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Like even, he says, even if you were right, it's just an excuse because you didn't do what you were, knew you were supposed to do. Many times we take what has happened to us in the past or we take what somebody has told us about God in the past and we use that as an excuse to run away from God rather than pursuing a relationship with Jesus. My encouragement to you is if you find yourself in this place, do you pursue a relationship with Jesus? And listen, if you're, if you're in this space, you're like, I don't even think I can do that because I don't, I don't believe that God is a good master. Do me a favor. We're in Matthew today. Matthew is uh, the first book in the New Testament. The New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the biographies of Jesus found in the New Testament. It's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Again, if you don't have a Bible at home, grab that blue one, put your name in it, take it home. What I want you to do is I want you to read these four Gospels. And even if you are a follower of Jesus, you've followed Jesus for decades, this is something incredible to do. Because when you read about who Jesus is, you find out about what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at what Jesus did. Look at how he taught. Look at who he loved. Look at what made him angry and what brought him joy. Take notes. You'll find out what God is like because God is love. And God is pursuing a relationship with you. God is generous, right? The master in this in this. Um, uh, parable, when, when you look at his response to the first two servants, we, we've all had enough b- bad bosses to know that the third servant isn't right about this master. This master shares the credit. He invites them in to enter into the joy of their master, which is a sign of intimacy. Right? And, and this brings up an, an important point. 
When we are learning about who Jesus is, man, facts are good. Learning about who God is, his, his attributes, all of that is really necessary. But what we're talking about here is not just cold facts or cold theology. This is about a relationship with Jesus. This is about intimacy. Understand, this is a hard thing to do. This is why we talked about path groups. This is why we talked about path groups today. I love my path group because um, they, they know me well enough to speak into my life in areas where I'm trying to follow Jesus, where I am wrong, or, or maybe encourage me where things are going well. And so again, if you are not in a path group, I encourage you, do what Josh asked you to do. Sign up for that path group course on January 18th. Because knowing Jesus is at the center of everything. So the beginning point, the difference between the first two servants and the third servant, isn't what they did. It's their relationship with the master. It all begins with the relationship with Jesus. Second thing to take a look at in these important differences is this. Everything you have has been given to you by God. Everything you have has been given to you by God. Now, when you look at what these servants were given, right, this is it's a lot of money, these talents. Now, but if you go to an, a bank and you look at the exchange rates, you're not going to find out how much a talent is worth. Like, can I convert some dollars into talents? No, that's not going to happen. And it's important to say that this is, this is not just about money. This is about their lives. And that everything that we've been given, our very lives have been given to us by God. We know this because of the amount of wealth that is involved here. Like one talent, we don't, we don't even know exactly what that's worth, but, but the best estimates are about 20 years worth of wages for, for your, your just run-of-the-mill laborer, for your day laborer. 20 years of wages. In other words, even the servant who got one talent was holding an unimaginable amount of wealth. Like, like he was never going to work enough to save this much money. It's not like he had a camel on the side and he could you know, run an Uber business or something like that and get people around. No, 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 no. This was an unimaginable amount of money. Not to say nothing of two talents and five talents. This was more than they could ever hope to hold on to themselves. They could never earn this much money in order to save enough. Maybe if they worked for 20 years, over a lifetime, they could possibly see that much come in and go out. But they're never going to hold on to this much money at once. This was a, an unimaginable fortune to them. Everything we have has been given to us by God. Like we can't take any credit for it. The problem is this. We don't believe that. Let me show you a little bit what this looks like. Um, uh, our kids, I've got five kids, and um, two of them have been to Disneyland, the older ones, because we took a trip a number of years ago, but the younger three have never been to Disneyland. And uh, they really, really want to go, and they, they've been talking about it. And a couple weeks ago, um, Aiden, our seven-year-old, comes up to me and Jennifer and, and says, okay, so what if I saved all my allowance? Could we go to Disneyland? And, and you start to do the math. He gets $5 a week if he does all his chores. And so you start to do the math, and you say, okay, you're going to set that aside. Man, to take yourself, let alone your family, it's just impossible. Especially, like, if you start talking about uh, inflation. Like, man, it's just going to outrun you. Like, this is not going to happen. It is impossible, kid. You do not have the power to save up enough money to go to Disneyland. Period. So fast forward to Christmas. And the big gift that our kids got to open from their mom and dad, from me and Jennifer, was a trip to Disneyland. Like, it's a beautiful moment. It's everything that you would hope. Like, they're screaming. Like, it's just exactly what you want as a parent. And they knew... That there was no way that they could ever earn this trip. Like, this was a gift, and they loved it, and they were grateful for it, and they couldn't believe it. And they, they've been talking about when we're going to go ever since. Like, it's going to be amazing. Now, you take that same $5. We live about three minutes from a Maverick. 
Our kids love to go to Maverick. Like, the people who work there know them by name. Like, it, it, maybe we're not great parents. I don't know. But they love to go to Maverick. And they might go get a soda, maybe some candy, and they come back. And maybe a sibling asks them for a sip. And then we got pretty generous kids. A lot of times they're like, yeah, you can have a sip, you can have some candy. But sometimes the answer is no. That's my soda. Kid, are you kidding me? Like, first of all, I've seen how you do chores. Like, like, like we are, you, I have to sweep after you go to bed because you didn't do a good enough job. All right? That's just, that's just, when you're seven years old, that's just kind of how it is. What's more, this whole setup where you can earn money from this job I gave you on this chore chart. Like, this is all your parents' idea. Like, your mom figures it all out and doles out the money. That's not your soda. Are you kidding me? That's how we view it. No, it's my soda. Many of us have a soda view of what God has given us versus a Disneyland trip view of what God has given us. And some of you, it's not that you have a lot and you think that it's yours and that you earned it. If we're honest with ourselves, some of us look at what we have and we say, well, at least the one talent guy got that much. God's given me nothing. God's given me. I've got, I've got nothing to take and offer to God because what God has given me is is I don't have much to offer at all. Think that's true? How about no arms and no legs? Okay, Nick Vujicic um, was born in Australia with a genetic condition with no arms and no legs. And his story is incredible. We're not going to get into it today. But all you need to know is he's spent his entire adult life since he was 19 years old traveling the globe telling people about Jesus. I don't mean to like to guilt us into this, like, oh, maybe I should do something like that. No, no, no. He was given less than nothing. But here's the important thing. In, our, uh, in God's upside-down kingdom, in his view of the world, what we think is of, as little is really five talents. And what we think of is tons of opportunity and something really successful and something that God can really use really isn't all that much. If you think you have nothing to offer, if you say, man, things have not been going well, my job has not been going well, man, we're behind on our mortgage. Have you seen my kids? Like, like they're just driving me crazy. I spend all my time with them. If you think you don't have much to offer, it's just not true. In fact, even if that were true, if you are a follower of Jesus, God has given you your very life. Jesus was nailed to a cross for your sins and for my sins. Paul says it this way, that, that we were bought with a price. Jesus' blood has covered your sins and given you eternal life. You don't have anything to offer? Man, everything we have has been given to us by God and has been given to us by God to do exactly what the first two servants do, which is just simply risk it. Risk it. And the reason why it wasn't really much of a risk is because these servants knew that they served a good master and they knew that everything that had been given to them was from their good master. We are in no different position. We serve a good God. We follow a Savior who's not just a, a, a Savior who loves us but gave his very life as a ransom for you and for me. So when we risk what we have for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, it's honestly not much of a risk at all. Which brings us to the third kind of difference. God desires faith, not outcomes. 
Now, here's what I mean by that, because a lot of times this, this word faith is kind of squishy. We, we kind of picture faith like a bucket. If I can just work up enough faith and fill my bucket, then I can really do something. That's not what, that's not what faith is. Faith is really just trust, putting ourselves in the hands of God. Faith is just simply another word for trust. And I believe this is why Jesus, in this story, gives us precious few details about what the first two servants did. Because the outcome wasn't up to them, it was up to the master. God desires trust to risk everything that he has given you, because it's his to begin with. God desires trust to risk everything that he has given you for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. And that's what he's asking for because the outcomes are actually up to God. Listen, if you're like me, it's part of me that doesn't really like that. Like I, I am somebody that loves to manage outcomes. I played soccer when I was in high school and college and I played goalkeeper and I loved it. You know why I loved it? I loved having everything on my shoulders. I loved that when things didn't go well, it was my fault. And I loved the glory. Like when you stopped a penalty kick in, in a shootout and you won the game, man, I wanted that glory. Like I loved it on my shoulders. And there's a part of me, if I'm honest with you, that's like, well, God, I'd love a little bit of that glory. But the reality is it's not up to me. It's not up to you. It's not on my shoulders. The outcomes are up to God, which is, which is hard for some of us to understand. Maybe you've been taught that because you did A, B, and C, God can't do anything. You probably think God's that weak? It's just not true. God desires faith, not outcomes. Paul in 1 Corinthians puts it this way. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it'll be up here on the, on the screen. Um, there was a kind of an argument in Corinth about who the best leader was. Like many of them, like they had the trading card for Apollos. Like he's our guy. They had the trading card for Paul. Man, he's our guy. And there's this silly arguments over who was the best. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The growth is up to God, which is freeing. Not only is it not on our shoulders, but all you have to do is take what God has given to you, which is honestly your very lives, and risk it for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. And the outcomes are up to him. It's freeing. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus is asking through this story that we simply trust, and not just a little bit, but everything we have, and that we risk what God has given us for the sake of of Jesus and his kingdom. And again, it's not much of a risk at all. Because first of all, we know that God is a good God. We know Jesus is a savior who came to die for us. Everything we have was given to us by God in the first place, so it's not ours to claim, to lay hold of. And what's more, God is, God is in charge of the outcomes, not us. And what this frees us up to do is to risk everything we have for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. And the question is, what does this look like? And again, I, I wish there was a YouTube video. I wish there was step-by-step. Step. But again, Jesus give, gives us precious few details about what these first two servants did. He only shows that they had a relationship with the master, that they knew everything they had was the master's and not theirs. What does this look like? Well, one of the pictures that often comes to mind 
uh, Corrie Ten Boom, uh, lived in Holland in the Netherlands in the early 20th century. And uh, she lived through the First World War, and, and during the Second World War, um, she actually um, became, became part of a large network of people whose mission it was to hide and protect Jewish people in the Netherlands and get them to safety or hide them until the Nazi occupation was over. And here, her and her family, they loved Jesus, they, they were followers of Jesus, and, and they would talk a little bit about um, maybe what could they do to help, and they just didn't know. They never imagined, and Corey never imagined, that one day that she would be part of this network of, of people that was hiding and, and, and saving and helping hundreds, if not thousands, of Jewish people. And you know how it all started? There was a knock at the door. There was a knock at the door. One night, there was a Jewish person at her door who needed help and said, can you help me? And she said, yes, come in. That was the beginning of it. And they honestly didn't have much to, to, to offer. They couldn't feed all these people. It was God who eventually supplied all that. They, they didn't know what this would all look like. They didn't know what the next step was. They honestly didn't have an idea what to do. They just knew that in this moment, God was asking them to risk. And Corey said, yes. That's what this looks like. So what does it look like for you? What would it look like this year for you to risk everything you have for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom? What are you going to risk this year for Jesus and his kingdom? Now, I don't know what it looks like for you. Um, for our family, um, I, I'm reminded that eight years ago, uh, at about this time, um, we began, we, we, we kind of answered the call to become foster parents. And, and I always feel weird talking about this because we are we are not great parents sometimes. Like my kids were in the first gathering and I invited you. I hope some, some people in the first gathering um, took me up on this offer. I said, talk to them about how imperfect their parents are. Like yesterday we had this amazing celebration for the new year and we ended up yelling at each other. Like honestly, this is, we, we are not better than anybody else. And the thing was at the beginning, my wife especially, I didn't tell her I was going to talk about this, but my wife especially, man, she, she didn't want to do it. Not because she doesn't love kids. She's the most amazing mom and preschool teacher you'll ever meet. Because she knew the cost. She knew the risk. And honestly, it's been hard. It's been difficult, not just for, for us, not just for our, our kids, but for many people who care for us. And the reality is I wouldn't change a thing because I couldn't imagine all that God would do just simply because we said yes. Again, not because we're perfect, but it's just simply the next risk that God asked us to take. So the question is, what is the next risk God is asking you to take? It might be jumping into a path group. Maybe you've said, man, I can do it on my own, and it sounds, sounds weird, I don't want to be vulnerable. Listen, you can't do it alone. Jump in. Maybe you are in a path group, and if you're honest with yourself, I've been there, you've been less than forthright about what's going on in your life. Maybe your risk is, is to be vulnerable in your path group. Maybe there's a one uh, that, that you've been praying for, somebody that you've written on the wall, or, or just somebody in your life that you have been praying that would come to know Jesus, and you've been asking God to use you, but, but if you're honest, you haven't really leaned in. Maybe God's asking you to risk leaning into that relationship and making it a little awkward. Wait, let me tell you a little bit about Jesus. Listen, I know this may not be your thing, but can I just tell you how Jesus has changed my life? Maybe you haven't gotten to know your neighbors, and, and, and God is asking you to lean in and, and spend some time uh, with your neighbors that you'd rather spend watching football, if you're honest, and use some of that time to engage your community. Maybe he is asking you to open up your home and invite kids into your family. Maybe it's your career. 
Maybe things are going well and you're providing for your family, but, but God's been nudging you to do something different. Whatever it is, and again, there's no list to follow, my guess is this, if you spend time, if you spend time asking God, what do you want me to risk for Jesus and his kingdom? And he's going to answer that prayer. Chances are something's already come to mind. My prayer for us is that God would give us the, the courage to step into that, to trust him, knowing that what we have isn't ours anyways. And so when God is asking us to risk everything we have, He's just asking us simply to risk what he's already given us. May that be what we do as a church in 2022. Let me pray for us. God, uh, even, as I, even as I talk about this, um, I'm aware of, of, of all the ways where, where I have not had courage and I have not stepped into the risk that you're inviting me to. So, Father, I pray for, for me and for, for all of us in this room that we would have the faith and the trust, not in ourselves, but in you, that you are a good God, that Jesus died for us and gave us everything we need to risk everything we have for the sake of him and his kingdom. Father, would you give us courage where we lack courage? Father, would you give us insight about all that you have given us when we think there is nothing there? And Father, would you just simply give us the next step when we don't know what to do? May we be the kind of community because of all that Jesus has done for us. We are willing to risk everything we have for him and his kingdom. We pray these things in his name. Let all the people say, amen.